Hello folks, it's good to be back on the air, and yes, it is Friday, and I am looking forward to the weekend, but what I'm really looking forward to more than anything is sharing another uh, podcast uh, session on Through the Perilous Fight by Steve Vogel. Well, the last couple of nights we've uh, talked um, a lot about some uh, valuable information, well, anything that's uh, of significant importance that um, any of you all didn't know about the War of 1812 um, and uh, knowing what we know now um, going forward is uh, very uh, useful to have. So tonight's uh, podcast is going to be talking about um, certain members of Madison's uh, cabinet, or should I say President James Madison's cabinet, and also a little uh, history about what Washington, D.C. looked like as the nation's capital at the beginning of the 19th century. You know, we need to understand that it's one thing for a war to take place, but we also need to find out as much information as possible about um, key people um, and the roles they played, because war itself doesn't, just doesn't happen on on a whim. Uh, we know that uh, Congress has declared war, but they've declared war w- without being 100% united. In other words, the vote was on party lines. It was geographical, um, or should I say it was based on geographical region. Uh, the Warhawks, even though that's not the political party, but that's just the nickname they've been given. Their leaders are obviously Speaker of the House um, Henry Clay, um, and John C. Calhoun, very, um, or should I say just the top uh, congressional guru leaders, they are uh, very prominent and smart people, but even as the ousted John Randolph said to the Warhawk um, delegation, you all may have uh, d- gotten your wish in terms of declaring war, but how are you going to protect the coast? How are you going to protect D.C. if you send everybody up north, being Canada? into Canada, that is. So, this is going to be an easy question, obviously, to answer, but I'm going to ask it. How can President Madison's cabinet, that is, the men below him, the heads of departments, be best described? Very dysfunctional. However, by the time uh, war is declared, being in 1812, the overall status of dysfunction within the cabinet becomes even um, complex and um, more difficult. And dysfunction will take on a greater meaning for all the not-so-good reasons by 1814. I know I haven't, I've talked some about 1814 very briefly, but from the other podcasts and even into tonight's, all of the information that has been shared, as well as what will be discussed tonight, all is uh, essential in leading up to 1814. Events that happen in one year just don't happen in that year, but they are caused by other matters that lead up to them. What cabinet departments exist in the early days of our young republic's existence? Well, for starters, I can tell you this. 
there is no Department of Agriculture. There is no Department of the Interior. There is no uh, Department of Justice, although there, you know, we do have a United States Attorney General, but we don't, it's not referred to as the Department of Justice. We also don't have a Department of Veterans Affairs, nor do we have a Department of Energy, Transportation, or Health and Human Services. Um, the departments that are around are the Department of State, Treasury, Navy, War, and of course, I guess you, even though there is no Department of Justice, there is the Attorney General. Really, there's only about five, um, five key um, cabinet positions. And which is more powerful, being the Secretary of State or Vice President? The answer is Secretary of State. As a matter of fact, the Secretary of State in the early days of the Republic's existence held a more professional title in large part because the Secretary of State wasn't just so much traveling overseas to like Spain, France, or, or England, but the Secretary of State had a greater shot at, um, at doing more good than, say, the Vice President. Matter of fact, um, not to get off track here, but it is true, even John Adams, who was our nation's first Vice President, was Vice President to George Washington for eight years, even John Adams himself said it was a very, very lonely position. He himself was even excluded from a handful of George Washington's meetings. Um, and historians have, do know that in the early years of the Republic that a handful of vice presidents often spent their time back at their home estate and were only needed when it was an absolute emergency. That would be if in the event the president became ill or, or died in office. So, therefore, the Secretary of State is a very, very, um, what do you call it, not just a, a key position, but it, it takes um, greater presence over that of being Vice President. So who was the Secretary of State at this time? James Monroe, a very prominent Virginian. Who was Secretary of the Navy? A man named William Jones. And who was Secretary of War? John Armstrong. Now, we will be talking about these three men here uh, in a little bit. Now, I was when I read this book, and when I uh, redid some uh, research on this part of Washington, D.C., I had to be reminded of just how far Washington, D.C., being our nation's capital, has come since the time of 1800. You know, it's easy to assume that... Uh, that when Washington, D.C. became the capital, that it would have that same layout and structure like we know today. Not necessarily the case. But in the year 1810, and of course, we take a census every 10 years, especially at the start of a new decade, but in 1810, the census of Washington, D.C., confirmed that the population was about 8,208 people. You know, for, for the early 19th century, that is a pretty decent-sized population. But remember, Washington, D.C., even though it is the nation's capital, it's not where a lot of people prefer to flock to. Most people prefer to be in Georgetown. They prefer to be in uh, old, 
Alexandria, of course, what many people would know today as Old Town Alexandria. Many people would rather also prefer to be in Annapolis or let alone Baltimore. Even better, the former capital before D.C. being Philadelphia. So what are the two most prominent buildings in D.C.? Well, it's easy, the White House and the Capitol. Although the White House and the Capitol are not the same grand structures like they are uh, today, they stood out in the open. You, I mean, they might as well have been out on farmland. I mean, that's how open they were. Um, the White House, as we know, in 1810 did not have... Um, what he called fences around it that are now geared for protection purposes in, in today's uh, time, given the world we live in. But in 1810, anybody could just walk up to the White House and ask to see the president if, uh, say, President Madison was available. So these two buildings stood out in the open like ancient Greek temples, and there were plenty of scattered buildings nearby. And the landscape around the White House and the Capitol consisted of farm fields where, that comprised of crops like wheat, corn, and tobacco. So let's put it, put it to you all this way. There is no Capitol Beltway in D.C. at this time. And maybe that's a good thing. Uh, there is no um, Woodrow Wilson Bridge. <laughs> uh, there is no Washington Monument at this time. It's, uh, it's basically the wilderness. Is that a good thing? Yes. But just because it's a wilderness, it doesn't mean that, um, that it's not safe from an outside force from wanting to do harm. And if you leave your key buildings unprotected in the wilderness... Who knows, who knows um, just how vulnerable those from within can become. Now, um, I found it also interesting, uh, the breakdown of people who were living in Washington, D.C., because it, it just wasn't confined to just one class of people, but there were um, a multitude of uh, different ranks of people in Washington society. Our first group is the capital elite. And who is the capital elite? High-ranking government officials, foreign diplomats, military officers, and the native gentry of plantation families. Basically, we could say that the capital elite probably would make up what we might think of as nowadays the wealthiest 1% or 2%. Our middle class population in Washington, D.C. at the start of the 19th century is comprised of tradesmen, shopkeepers, to government clerks. And then you have what were known as the lower class uh, white uh, population. They were laborers and indentured servants who were of um, European, not just so much European status, but they came over here as, as uh, immigrants from Europe. They were um, Irish or of Northern European descent. They worked on laying out the streets to constructing the buildings. And about one-fourth of this population was African-American. 
about 1,400 slaves and 800 freed African Americans were living in D.C. Well, how many um, buildings are there in Washington, D.C. that were reported from this first census? Well, there were about 900 scattered buildings. And as mentioned from above, it would be safe to say that uh, people from all ranks of uh, Washington society would have been living in these scattered buildings. However, if you were of the capital elite, you probably could have afforded to have lived in a home that was an octagonal home. Who, uh, which uh, famous person was the first to have an octagonal home built in the United States? That answer is Thomas Jefferson. His home in Bedford County, known as Poplar Forest, was the first octagonal home built. And of course, others followed, um, maybe not just so much Thomas Jefferson's um, idea of having an octagonal home, but it became somewhat of a norm if, as long as you could have afforded that kind of uh, luxury lifestyle. So it is safe to say that Washington, D.C. has come a long way since that first census of 1810. Um, but for those people who were living in D.C. at the start of the 19th century, if they saw Washington, D.C. today, I'm not sure on one hand if they would even recognize the capital, our nation's capital, that is. They probably would be in awe of just how far the city has come, but I don't know what they would think of all the gridlock, not just traffic on the road, but of all the uh, political gridlock that exists today in Congress. So the first of our three uh, cabinet members uh, that we will be discussing tonight is a man named John Armstrong, who is the Secretary of War. John Armstrong, I will tell you this much, um, his um, appointment to the Madison administration, in my opinion, should never have happened. And I will explain why. I feel those reasons to be. He was chosen by default after the previous secretary, William Eustace, resigned under pressure in December of 1812. As, to, as for the reasons why he might have resigned under pressure, for all we know, it could have had to have done with the War of 1812 itself. The, the, knowing that um, the war did not go off to a good start as planned. So it, it's very well possible. As for Mr. Armstrong, he was a former senator and diplomat who had served as staff officer with the Continental Army during the American Revolution at battles like Trenton, New Jersey, and Saratoga, New York. And he had a good reputation for military expertise. He was from New York, and his appointment to the Madison administration enabled an even geographical balance to take place. Why is it that geographical balance is, in, is important in an administration, especially in the early days of our republic's existence? Well, you know, first off, I can tell you this much. Um, for starters, that when our Constitution was being debated and, and the amendments 
were put into play, not just the amendments, but the different articles of the Constitution, there were a lot of compromises that occurred between the northern and southern states. And those compromises obviously were good, but I think it's fair to say that, okay, if you made enough or should I say equal amounts of compromises based off of the regions that you lived in, in order for a government to have any kind of um, proper stability, you're going to need to have an even balance of men who come from north and south. Well, from the north, that's where a vast majority of your federalists probably are, and those uh, who would favor um, a strong central government or one that is based off of uh, mercantile affairs, that is, um, port, uh, shipping, uh, anything that might pertain to um, the high seas, and and how true that is, especially um, with those who are dependent on the uh, commercial port industry for goods coming in and out of our country. If you are from the South, the vast majority of people are probably going to be anti-federalist. Uh, in other words, a small government that favors agrarian, um, what do you call it, interests. So basically, by having a cabinet in James Madison's eyes that could be um, evened out um, based off of geographical region, it would prevent any kind of conflict. It would perhaps prevent uh, partisanship. It would prevent um, chaos and, un and any form of unnecessary rancor in the eyes of uh, James Madison. Now, it does turn out that Madison himself wanted James Monroe for Secretary of War. But who's who's, who has opposed this? The northern senators. They didn't want a Virginian for this post. Well, the only reason I can think of for why maybe the northern senators, say from Pennsylvania, New York, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, for example, did not want James Monroe, wasn't so much because he was a Virginian, but the fact that Virginia still is the largest state in the United States. And think about it. Uh, Virginia's bound, you know, think about it. West Virginia is, there is no West Virginia that we know today. It's still part of Virginia. Virginia still has Indi what we now know as Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. It, Virginia might as well be its own independent um, sovereignty in the, in the United States just because of how big it is. And it's like that old saying went um, back in the American Revolution time that, hey, if any of the other colonies were wanting to go to war with England, they still had to go through Virginia first because she was the biggest of the colonies. Uh, but I would, I, I do feel it probably is safe to say that some northern senators just had um, mixed feelings about James Monroe. But think about it. James Monroe is a very, very well-liked man, and he is very, very well-accomplished. And I will uh, talk a little bit more about him uh, later on in the podcast. So, Madison did seek out Monroe for Secretary of War, but the Northern Senators were not going to have any of it in, in terms of uh, uh, letting Madison take him on. Well, what do other members of Madison's administration think about Mr. Armstrong, 
Well, many of them know about his unstable personality. Well, I think it's safe to say that all of us may have a mixed personality at, at, at various times, but for Mr. Armstrong, this is more than just a 101 problem. He feuded on many of occasions with the entire cabinet, most notably James Monroe. Well, what do you know? James Monroe sought a military command post for leading the Northern Army. And the Northern Army, that is, going into Canada. Mr. Armstrong blocked the appointment. Mr. Armstrong went as far as to sticking his nose into military commander's affairs, and he really had bad relations with high-level leadership in the military. He was disloyal to President Madison. He kept him in the dark. He was misleading and manipulative. Gosh, this to me sounds like someone who simply has no business being in the government, let alone a secretary of war. Why doesn't James Madison just get rid of this guy? We're going to find that out here shortly. Well, James Monroe has the guts in December of 1813 to confront James Madison about John Armstrong, he wants Madison to fire the guy. Monroe has accused Mr. Armstrong of mishandling the invasion of Canada, along with stabbing President Madison in the back. And James Monroe had all the right reasons to express his dismay, or I should say displeasure, to President Madison about this. Well, Madison does the opposite by doing nothing. He doesn't even have the guts to take a stand. He'd rather please than hurt Mr. Armstrong's feelings. You know, conflict is a very um, touchy matter. And it's around whether we like it or not. It comes in all different shapes, big and small. And yes, it can be very hard sometimes to take a stand on something that perhaps you don't feel comfortable about. But if you don't take a stand or make, make an effort to take a stand, then how are you going to remove the problem or let alone modify it? You know, you can only take but so much abuse. Maybe not so much you as the individual, but others around you can only take but so much Well, despite his unstable personality, what did Mr. Armstrong do to make things all the more worse? I hate to say this, but Mr. Armstrong refused to defend the nation's capital. He became convinced Washington would never be attacked. He ignored pleas from the army to build earthworks to defend our capital. He was convinced that all the fighting that was going on needed to remain in Canada. Mr. Armstrong really, in my opinion, is worthless. You know, yes, it may have been nice to have evened out the geographical balance in your cabinet. But just because you do that, it doesn't mean everybody's in harmony. It doesn't mean that everybody just lives happily ever after and works out their differences constructively. 
No, it doesn't mean diddly squat. Well, Mr. Armstrong considered Madison an amateur in all military matters. Perhaps James Madison probably deserved to be an amateur because he really did not have a true grasp on the whole situation itself. Yes, he was left in the dark. Yes, he was misled. But Madison himself probably could be somewhat at fault for not doing a better job of um, managing the people below him, most notably Mr. Armstrong. Obviously, Mr. Armstrong did nothing to prepare for the Capitol's defense. Even Madison himself failed to intervene. But Madison can also shoot, I hate to say this, but Madison himself ought to shoot himself in the foot for the fact that he was opposed to strong executive power. Even worse, he refused to undermine the foundations of Republican government, which he and Thomas Jefferson created. There it was. Their government was one that should revolve around um, agriculture, and not that there's nothing wrong with that, but the government should focus on uh, the small farmers, not just those who have 10 and 20 acres of land, but farmers who own a lot of land, but farmers who um, have a great interest in what they bring to the government. In other words, Jefferson and Madison did not believe that the wealthy and the well-educated should be running the government. Now, I probably mentioned this before from another uh, season, but for those of you who have often wondered, what does it mean when Alexander Hamilton, or should I say the late Alexander Hamilton, obviously he died in 1804 as a result of that infamous duel with Aaron Burr, he is the one that said that the wealthy and the well-educated were the ones to be running the government. Yes, it's one thing to have money. What he meant by well-educated, it wasn't so much going to Harvard or Yale, but that you as an individual, if you wanted to have a seat in government, you needed to have a great deal of knowledge about um, the interests that, uh, that you uh, represented or that you had knowledge on. So, if, for example, if you worked in the maritime industry and you had a great deal of knowledge, about maritime affairs, then yes, you should be in the government. You could be a congressman. You could be um, working in the shipping industry. The bottom line is, if you have the knowledge, then use it wisely. If you are not well educated, and you don't really, and you're just a simple farmer, say with 10 or 20 acres, but that's all you know, then why should your voice be in the government? In other words, how are you going to represent constituents if you don't have a whole lot uh, to bring to the table? So, um, and then of course it, it doesn't help that Jefferson and Madison are not big fans of standing armies, not just in times of uh, peace, but in times of war as well. Madison is very convinced that the militia can do just about anything when, neat, when called into duty. But I'll just tell you this right now. He, he'll be in for a rude awakening, especially in 1814. I mean, he, he will literally be on the, on, in a rude, for a rude awakening. As a matter of fact, by 1814, his cabinet at times is on the verge of collapse. 
Now, here's something I found out very interesting about Thomas Jefferson. Of course, Jefferson is already back home in Monticello, but when he was president, he had appointed John Armstrong as minister to France. However, Thomas Jefferson became very skeptical of Mr. Armstrong, especially in regards to his personal character. You know, even though, yes, Jefferson may not be in favor of a strong central government, at least Jefferson himself had enough smarts about John Armstrong to know that, hey, this guy really can't be trusted all the time regardless of the circumstances. And I'm sure as much as Thomas Jefferson thinks highly of James Madison, it's safe to say that Jefferson is glad to be back home in Monticello, where um, after 40 years of public service, being in 1809, uh, when he returns to Monticello, he can get back to doing what he likes to do, not just read books, but... um, rebuild Monticello. That was a pro- an ongoing project where he was, as his historian said, he was tearing it down and then bringing it back up. Well, what do uh, the people in Washington think about the lack of military preparedness on Madison's, on the Madison administration's part? I'll tell you this right now, the people in Washington, D.C. are very angry. And we're not just talking everyday, ordinary people. That includes the mayor himself, Dr. James H. Blake, who went as far as to leading a delegation of prominent citizens to meet with Mr. Madison. Okay? Now, you would think this meeting could go well, but James Madison... I know Madison is a very smart man, I think it might be safe to say on one hand that Madison has become too big of a micromanager. Yes, he could be trying to do too much on his own, but he is playing with a lot of fire. And in another podcast session, I will uh, talk about some of the people who had sent him uh, multiple warnings about what the British were up to. It's, It's scary. And of course, think about it, people. We have no CIA back then, but but these men who sent President Madison and Secretary of War Armstrong warnings, these were not ordinary men. These were men who um, had military experience. They were um, perhaps what we might call pillars of their communities, but these were men who knew the surroundings. They knew about what was about what could be lying at stake and you know it's one thing to sit back and say well I'll just assume that the government will take care of this no uh, you can't always assume that someone above you is going to take care of everything Uh, you know the government on one hand yes the government can't do everything for us but at the same time the government can can at least um, establish a 101 base or greater as to, okay, having at least some form of game plan on how to go about recognizing the problem and what can be done to modify it. And not just perhaps modify it, but perhaps prevent the inevitable from happening. 
Well, James Madison himself did admit that he alone could not protect everyone and that Washington, D.C. was to fend for itself if in the event the British were to attack. Wow, I almost think James Madison could be selling out the American people. The problem here is that James Madison is very set in his ways. Well, you know, all of us can be set in our ways, and sometimes that's not always good, but when you are dealing, this is, we're pretty much into the third year of, our, of this war, it's, and it's unpopular as it is. And yes, we have scored victories on Lake Erie, which uh, regained uh, the, what do you call it, the uh, territory of uh, Detroit, or should I say the Michigan Territory. We have been allowed to regain a fair amount of the Northwest Territory. But here we are struggling in Canada, left and right, to where nothing's gone in our favor. And here we are leaving Washington and the cities north and south along the coast defenseless. So we've got problems. Or should I say Houston, we have a problem. Well, who is uh, William Jones? He was Mr. Madison's Secretary of the Navy from 1813 to 1814. He even served in the American Revolutionary War. He saw combat in the battles of Trenton and Princeton. And those two battles are the battles that helped save the American Revolution and save the Continental Army and the cause for independence from being completely extinguished. He proved to be a very effective leader in his post. His policies even helped ensure American success along the Great Lakes and implementing strategies of coastal defense and commerce raiding on the high seas. We're going to talk more about William Jones in another podcast session. Now, and I say this because a fellow who we will also talk about in another session by the name of Joshua Barney. He is the one who um, suggested to Secretary of the Navy William Jones uh, to take on the challenge of fighting, or um, yes, you could say fighting uh, British uh, ships along the Chesapeake Bay. And... Joshua Barney, thank heavens we had him because he laid everything on the line to protect our to protect the people from coastal attacks. He was the first to challenge the the British under the leadership of a rear admiral George Coburn, who uh, will be talked um, somewhere down the road here soon. In another podcast, uh, George Coburn was probably one of the most feared. Um, officers of the British um, military in this war. Might as well have been like the equivalent of a Bannister, Bannister A. Tarleton or of a Lord Charles or, yes, Lord Charles uh, Cornwallis. Um, he, was, uh, he was that powerful and uh, ruthless. Our last person we're going to be talking about tonight is um, James Monroe. And he will be discussed more in other podcasts, I can promise you that, on this um, book, Through the Perilous Fight. Well, James, besides being James, 
President Madison's Secretary of State, James Monroe is a very well-accomplished individual. He is a Virginian, as I mentioned earlier. He, is, he comes from a second-tier planter family in Westmoreland County. And if any of you don't know where Westmoreland County is in Virginia, that's up in the Northern Neck. And in the early days of Virginia's existence, or I should say, especially in the 18th century, most notably, the Northern Neck is one of the most powerful regions in Virginia. And it's, it's comprised of tidewater as well. But the Northern Neck goes, in the 18th century, goes all the way into Alexandria, Virginia. Of course, we know today Alexandria as Northern Virginia. But in the 18th century, the areas that we know of as Northern Virginia today were a part of uh, the Northern Neck. As a matter of fact, George Washington himself was born in the Northern Neck. Um, James Madison himself came from the Northern Neck. So uh, it's safe to say that a fair number of our forefathers came from that uh, Northern Neck uh, Tidewater region. Now, James Monroe, or should I say true or false, does James Monroe have lots of military experience? Yes, he does. He joined the Continental Army at the age of 18, in 1776, and he even left the College of William and Mary to fight against England. He was a part of that infamous battle at Trenton, which saved the Continental Army and the cause for independence itself from being completely extinguished. He put his own life on the line by charging the Hessian lines. Now, for any of you who don't know uh, who the Hessians are, are just real quick, um, the Hessians were German mercenaries whom were related to King George III's wife, um, Charlotte, who was from Germany. She was from Mecklenburg, Germany. The Germans, or should I say the Hessians who came from Germany, were from Hesse-Cassel. And the Hessians in the early years of the American Revolution were some of the most feared soldiers they had no respect for the Continental Army. Of course, they had um, even taken many of our um, men prisoners of war and had routed us on the battlefields, especially in New York, uh, most notably Kipps Bay, uh, Brooklyn Heights, uh, Long Island. Uh, that was a very dark period of time in 1776, and... Um, what saved the Continental Army was the Battle of Trenton. It wasn't just so much the battle, but um, how George Washington went about planning the raid. Uh, but James Monroe was on the line, and for those of you who don't know this, there's a, a famous portrait of, uh, done by, I believe it was Gilbert Stuart. The portrait was done well, many years well after that battle, there is, in the picture, you can see George Washington standing on the boat. Now, I don't know how true that is, but he was standing on the boat. The artist had him standing on the boat because he, he was standing firm and tall, ensuring all of his men sitting down that, hey, we're not going to give up. We are still going to find a way to, um, to get through all this agony we're going to find a way to surprise our enemy and restore morale to this cause. Well, who else is supposedly in, this, in the boat? He's carrying an American flag. He's holding it with all of his might. James Monroe. James Monroe himself was nearly killed. 
and had it not been for a doctor nearby, he probably would have died. He even uh, served in the battles of Brandywine, Germantown, and survived that infamous bitter winter at Valley Forge in 1777. James Monroe was no stranger to public service. He even served as a U.S. Senator. He was Minister to France, England, and Spain, the three big European countries that the United States would have been dealing biz doing business with. He even was a governor of Virginia. Who was his biggest mentor? Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson and James Monroe were about 15 years apart, if that tells you anything right there. But it doesn't mean that just because Jefferson was 15 years apart that he still couldn't have had any influence on, James, on young James Monroe. You know, historians know that um, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe were referred to as the big three because any time those three were seen together, it was the talk of town. Jefferson and Monroe didn't live that far apart from each other. As a matter of fact, um, I've been to James Monroe's home a fair number of times, and uh, known as Ashlawn, Ashlawn Highland. It's now owned by uh, the College of William and Mary. They've owned that um, his home since I. Uh, I think since the 1930s, but um, Ashlawn and uh, Monticello are not that far apart, and of course James Madison's home being Montpelier is about 30 miles north of, uh, Sh of Charlottesville, or should I say of Jefferson's home in Monticello, but nonetheless when the three of them were together it was the talk of town, because they all had so much in common and they all brought so much um, what do you call it, uh, knowledge and good for their communities. And of course, in, it's not until 1811 that James Monroe actually became the Secretary of State. You know, James Monroe, I think it's safe to say, and I'll mention this in another podcast, but he's in a tight position right now. You know, he, is, he has gone above and beyond to warn James Madison about John Armstrong. I can't imagine just how difficult it must be for James Monroe to sit back now and realize that, look, I think the world of my president, whom I serve under, I would never go behind his back, but my commander-in-chief, who I serve under, is playing with fire. He um, is totally convinced that uh, the British are not going to attack Washington. He is totally convinced that... Um, that we don't really need to do a whole lot to be prepared for the for the unexpected. So I can only imagine what James Monroe is thinking. It's very un, it's very unsettling to say the least. Well, folks, um, thank you for letting me um, share um, with you all um, this information about uh, James Monroe. William Jones and um, John Armstrong. Um, you know, you never want to wish people harm, but as for John Armstrong, I just don't understand why he was not let go of. If, if you asked me, if I was commander-in-chief, I hope that there would have been people around me who would have been pleading with me until they were blue in the face to say, hey, you've got to get rid of this fellow. If you, don't, you know, if you don't get rid of him, we'll find a way to get rid of him for you. Um, so it's, you know, no, yes, we don't want to 
hurt people's feelings, but sometimes we have to learn the hard way for ourselves and realize that, hey, look, sometimes we got to let someone go because they're not um, thinking about either their country as a whole, they're not thinking about the rest of the, uh, the team. Basically, John Armstrong is someone who lives in that mentality of I, me, myself. James Madison's cabinet is not, um, yes, it's on the verge of collapse, but there is, there, there is not a 100% um, definitive um, agreement behind us, we, ourselves. However, I think it is fair to say that James Monroe and William Jones, on the other hand, have an us, we, ourselves approach. And there are, other, there are others who we will be learning about who also have that us, we, ourselves approach. But when you're talking about the commander-in-chief and someone like John Armstrong, who is Secretary of War, who are being very ignorant of their surroundings, that raises all the red flags um, out there. And when it's, and regardless of whether it's the majority or the minority who are engaging in conduct that's detrimental, it impacts all of us. And not just those in the cabinet level, but the people of Washington. And here the people of Washington, they're, they're not dumb people. The fact that uh, the mayor and, and an uh, elite group of well-to-do people were smart enough to come and confront James Madison about the overall um, state of preparedness if, if in the event that the inevitable took place, that says a lot for them to come forward, but it's bad enough that their commander-in-chief is blindsided. So, you know, yes, we can blame one person all we want for something, but if we didn't do our part to um, listen to those below us or from above, then we only have ourselves to blame um, for being ignorant. Well, that's all for tonight, and I look forward to another podcast session here soon um, on the book Through the Perilous Fight by Steve Vogel. And as I said from the other night, we will be talking more about Francis Scott Key. But remember this too, though. This war, or anything of historical importance, can't always revolve just around one person. There are lots of other people whose names have to be discussed, and that's a good thing because they too played an integral role um, not just for this uh, subject that we're talking about, but for any other historical uh, matter of significant uh, relevance. What I can tell you this is, is that in the next podcast we will talk about, um, what do you call it, um, some men who um, had sent repeated warnings to President Madison. We will also talk about uh, Joshua Barney. Um, we're going to talk about some other people who really did step up and gave everything there was on the line to protect our country, even in the most trying of times. Take care and uh, stay safe.